Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. I have two remarkable films to tell you about this week. And although it's what I do for a living, I tell people about movies, it's actually not going to be me that's doing the telling. Uh, Chirac is the new Spike Lee film. This is a movie that needs to be seen, I think, to be fully understood. Uh, it is a modern day adaptation of a Greek play by Aristophanes that was first performed in 411 BC. And essentially the idea is, is that it has been updated and transferred to the south side of Chicago. There's gang warfare. People are getting mowed down in the streets, including a young girl whose mother is played by Jennifer Hudson. You'll hear a little bit more about that in the interview. And one of the girlfriends of one of the leaders of the gangs says there's got to be a way. There has to be a way to stop this. I know. We'll go and do a sex strike. So she convinces the wives and girlfriends of all the gang members on both sides of the fence to go on a sex strike. Withhold sex from their boyfriends and husbands and everyone else until the guys agree to put down their weapons and sign a peace treaty. It's a story that is thousands of years old. It's actually worked in real life uh, and now it's on the big screen courtesy of Spike Lee. So we'll get to that in just a sec. The other film I want to tell you about is Midnight Special. This is the new film from Jeff Nichols. He is the director of other films like Mud and like Take Shelter, both of which feature Michael Shannon, as does this movie. And this is a science fiction movie that isn't like most other science fiction movies. It doesn't offer up easy explanations. In fact, you'll probably have more questions after the movie is done than you did going in. But you know what? That's okay. We'll get to that one in just a second. First up though, Spike Lee and I talk about Chirac. We talk about making the movie, going to the south side of Chicago to do the research, and in my first long, very rambling question, sit back, relax. It's about a minute long. Um, I set a scene and then ask him about it. Here's a listen. There's a scene in the film, and this doesn't give anything away to people who will be reading this eventually, where Jennifer Hudson is cleaning uh, the blood stain of her daughter off the off the, the ground, off the street. And there's a point at which the camera sort of pulls away. We don't see the blood stain anymore. We just see her face. And as she scrubs and scrubs to get this, this blot off the street, eventually she puts the, the bucket of water down and this red stain just goes everywhere. And yes, I sir. thought for such a hopeful movie in the idea that, you know, perhaps something can be done. It seemed to me that that was a, a metaphor for just the spread of this violence. Am I reading that into that scene, or is that what you intended? Well, I didn't really intend that, but I do see what you're saying. Yeah. And that's the great thing about art. I'll give a, a quick example. And do the right thing. Mookie throws a garbage can to the window. I, when I wrote it, my feeling was this. Mookie has just seen his best friend murdered in a choke, you know, strangled to death body in New York City Police Department. People would come up to me through the years and said their church interpretation was Mookie threw the garbage can as a distraction 
Right. Right. <laughs> so so Sal, Vito, and Peter would not be killed yeah. by the, the, a mob of angry black people. I did not think that, but that was some people's interpretation. That's, again, that's the thing about art. You know, you really can't dictate how people are going to interpret it because everybody comes from a different place. You must, but I will not argue with what you just said. Well, because it really it, it is, has stayed with me. The look on her face, the the whole scene is just. But so... but do you, but you, do you know Jennifer Hudson's history? Yes. Well, that's the thing. You know, it would. Look... I mean, she for for your readers, mounting is a doing. You know, this is no knowledge that Jennifer's mother, brother, nephew were murdered yeah. in Chicago. So. I think that's extra gravitas that you have with Jennifer Hudson in this film. This is not an act for her. Yeah. Did she, she is a, you know, she got hit directly by gun violence on the south side of Chicago. Now, when you were thinking about casting, and, and she seems like, you know, an obvious choice, were you reticent to approach her because it might yes. have been too close? Yes. Yeah. Number one, I didn't want her to think that I was exploiting her. Mm -hmm. And so there was, I knew I wanted to, for the part, but there was some length of time before I got the courage enough to, before I got the courage enough to approach her. Also, when we did meet, you know, I was going, I was babbling. She said, Spike, I know why you want me to do this film, so. You just stop. I'll do it. <laughs> she, you know, I was trying to, you know, I was trying to be sensitive, and I turned out just babbling and, and you know, beating around the, the point in the bush. Says Spike, I know why you want, I know why you want me to do it. I'll do it. <laughs> and I said, Oh, well, I'm just going to shut up. Yeah. Say thank you. You got what you got. You got what you came for. Right. Uh, now, do you think? That there were there were some or were there for you some particularly emotional moments working with her because uh, oh. it, on set it must have yes, dredged out some ghosts. The scene where she arrives upon the murder scene yeah. of her daughter, and also scene with her and the, the we call it the the bucket of blood scene mm -hmm. was shot on the same day. Wow. So it was a very, very emotional day for Jennifer. Very emotional. Well, she's terrific in the film. Yes, she is. And, and also, that song you hear over that scene, that's her singing, too. I was wondering about that, yeah. That's her. Yeah. Now, John Cusack has another remarkable scene. Yes, we call movie. that the, uh, it's a, we call it a, eul a eulogy slash sermon. Right. Well, the, the the thing that really grabbed me about it is that, and not only is his performance something to see, I mean, it's so fiery, but it, it encapsulates every point that the movie needs to make in I, I don't know how long. We, it, is it like, a, I think it's a 16-minute scene, and you might say that it would not be true if somebody said, Spike, you put everything in that but the kitchen sink. Right. And the reason why we do that, because this was a, this was this would be a place where we could lay out why Jennifer Dustin's daughter is in that casket. Mm -hmm. Because 
already we 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 had to give a reason why things are, and we didn't do that. It would just because it would, then it would just be well, black young black men are pathological, so that's what they do. No, this scene had to explain, give the reasons why the conditions exist. And the also at the same time, not absolving individual responsibility. Right. How long did it take to write that scene? Because uh, I can only well, imagine. Well, that scene, that's, we, we had a, you know, we, Kevin and I wrote the original scene, but then we got input from Father Flager yeah. and John Cusack. So I would say we, we, the four of us wrote it together. Many of the lines in the script were taken from stuff, lines I heard Father Flager saying in church at St. Sabina during his sermons. And he's a Roman Catholic priest that's had this church for 40 years in that neighborhood. Yes. And, and all black. This congregation is all black. Right. And, and, and I would say only 25% are actually Catholic. Right. And and I, I think he's he's one of the living saints, you know, in America. Not, yeah. not, just, not just Chicago. Yeah. And, and how did you meet him? Well, two years earlier, he asked me to speak at his church during Black History Month. And... Uh, that's where our friendship, because he called me out. I never heard of him until he approached me to speak at his church. And I was doing my research. I said, wait a minute. This is a white Catholic priest with a church. His church is on the south side of Chicago, and his congregation is all black. I got to meet this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and was that maybe the beginning of the thought process that eventually led to the film? No. 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 At no way, shape, or form did I think when I was there in Chicago about doing a film about shooting a film in Chicago. Yeah. That happened last year. Right. And uh, met with some controversy. The film has, has stepped beyond that controversy, I think. But at, in the moment, uh, the mayor was, was giving you a rough time, I think. How do you weather those storms? Well, I think that when you've been weathering storms since 1986, <laughs> yeah. you know my first film. You know, you get you get battle tested. Yeah. Battle tested. And it's just something that can only come with experience, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's you're absolutely right. I'm telling you because the weather, the you know the the shit storm that hit me, they're do the right thing. I was. Much I was able to weather because you know I had gone through stuff. With the first two films, she's gonna have it, and uh, school days. Right. Now you started then research. I'd heard uh, that you started about six months before the the camera started to roll. What kind of yeah, research? In January. Did you do? Well, I, we're just talking to people, meeting mm -hmm. people, getting the lay of the land. Yeah. People becoming was well, very important. Not just meet people, people becoming comfortable with with me right people will open up to me and what kind of things did you learn from them the human spirit is a great thing yeah. but at the same time you know, I'm dealing with people dealing with mothers you know but here's the thing at the end of the movie that scene where everybody's dressed in white and they surround uh, Jennifer Hudson, Nick Cannon, and Angela Bassett. Those women are not actresses. Those women are 
members of a group called Pain Over Purpose. They're mothers whose, whose children have been shot down, whose children, whose sons and daughters have been shot down the streets of Chicago. This, and those pictures they're holding up are pictures of their loved ones. So it's 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 very hard, but, but I mean it's very hard to listen to. I had to do it. I understand it, but the pain of a parent who's loved, who's lost a love, who's lost a, a child by any circumstance, whether it was shot, hit and run, whatever, is still something that no parent should have to go through. Mm-hmm. No one. And no one. And they all say that there's a hole in their spirit, in their soul that's never going to be replaced. And many of the those mothers have, have tried to commit suicide to various other problems since then. But uh, yeah, holding strong. It, it's remarkable when you when you think about how you started shooting, from what I understand, June 1st, and you finished on July 9th. And during that time, 331 people were wounded uh, and shot. Wounded, were shot and wounded. Yeah, and, and, and 65 were murdered. Right. And the, the film... It's gone up since then. Yeah. And, and the film, though, has a really interesting tone to it. There, there are, by times, moments that will rip your heart out, but there are funny moments in the film. There are, there are dance numbers that's in good, the film. I, I think, not to cut you off, but I think that's what good satire does. Yeah where you get that right mix, that right balance. Was it difficult to find that balance? Oh, it always is. It was difficult doing that and do the right thing. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you that, know when I you think that it? Stan, and I'm going to make a great leap to say that if Stanley Kubrick was alive, he would say it was hard to do that on Strange Love. I would say the same thing uh, for Desan with A Face of the Crowd. I would say the same thing for Sid Lamette for network, you know. It's hard to do, but it's a great way to, to deal with serious subject matter. And how do you know when you've hit it? Hmm. That's, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you just cross your fingers and hope? <laughs> well, you, not hope, but you just work in the editing room and uh, your, your gut reaction. Yeah. Now, what do you hope people take away from the film? The takeaway is that life is precious. Life is precious. That was Spike Lee talking about a film that's obviously very close to his heart. It's called Chirac. It's going to be a little difficult to see depending on where you are. It's open wide in America. In Canada, it's going to open slowly across the country, so check your local listings for uh, for times and places and dates and all that kind of stuff. Keep in mind, this is a really provocative movie that is part satire. It's all done in verse, so yeah, it all rhymes, uh, and it makes a very, very non-equivocal anti-violence, anti-gang statement. It's really powerful work from Spike Lee. Jeff Nichols is a director whose films I have long admired. I like that he doesn't offer up answers. I like that there's not a lot of exposition in his films. I like that his movies 
kind of speak for themselves in a very unique voice. Part of that very unique voice is his use of the actor Michael Shannon. We talk about that later on in the interview. We'll get to that near the end. So stay tuned uh, for that because he says some really interesting things about how Michael Shannon has actually made him, Jeff Nichols, a better filmmaker. Your films tend to be about social anxiety and about anxiety, I think, sort of in general. At least that's what I sort of take away from them. Do you think, and would it be fair to say that as presented in your new film, that uh, sort of the the uh, uh, faith in the unknown or the unknown is sort of the biggest social anxiety that we have right now. I certainly think you could you could make that statement and it'd be fair, um, but it doesn't exactly line up with um, with what I was thinking. Right. Uh, if you if you want to know the truth, yep. um, I was thinking about what it meant to be a parent and. I think being a parent is having faith in the unknown. You don't know what your children are going to grow up to be. You don't know what's going to happen to them. You don't know if they're going to make it uh, all the way. And um, you have to have faith in in who they who they can be and who they're developing into, who they are currently. You have to have uh, an understanding of the lack of control that you have over all that. And you have to have faith in the fact that it's going to work out. And um, I think that's what parenthood is. And I think that's why there's so much fear and anxiety that comes from being a parent. And um, I think if you were looking at Take Shelter and all of the anxiety and fear, that was much more about the world around us. Because when I wrote that film, I wasn't a parent yet. My wife was pregnant. And the idea of being a parent and a husband, it was still fairly theoretical in my mind. And I was just, I was less attached to the specifics of of the child um, and more attached to the impact of the environment around us. Um, Economic impacts, environmental impacts, will I, as a a caretaker, be able to pull this off, uh, make money, uh, provide, protect, all those things. In Midnight Special, it's no longer theoretical. I'm, I'm a father now, and I'm examining that that very specific relationship um, that I have with with this new human being that has been brought into the world. Um, so, on the one hand, you're right. Uh, both deal with fear and both deal with anxiety. But I think I think the cause or the catalyst of that anxiety is is um, it's not just social anymore. Mm-hmm. It's actually far more specific and, in a way, a lot more personal. And why so, then, do you frame the story uh, in the way that you did? I mean, I love that, that it's personal for you in this way. Um, you have to tell the story somehow, but there are, you know, uh, there's a, a sci-fi-ish element to this. Sure. There's, uh, you know, the cult element, all that sort of thing. Why frame the story this way? <clears throat> well, I'll start with the sci-fi part. That actually came first, you know. Um, I I wanted to make this kind of film, uh, which is a, a subgenre, to be honest, which is a sci-fi government chase film. Yeah. And, you know, that's really cheesy. That's, that could be very silly. <laughs> and, um, and I think it's up to me as a filmmaker to apply, to apply these kind of personal feelings that I have and, and my relationships to 
location and to the world at large to try and ground this film and, and give it some kind of actual purpose, you know? Um, I think though, so I don't know, as an answer to your question, the two kind of developed, um, uh, simultaneously and, um, and just kind of folded back in on each other. As far as the ranch goes and, and those particulars, I was really interested in belief systems. And I've actually been interested in this um, through all my films, but I think I've finally started to wrap my head around what I'm doing. You know, in Shotgun Stories, my first film, Michael Shannon's character shows up to his father's funeral. Uh, his father abandoned them when they were young. And he gives a speech about, you know, all of you people are here saying, standing over this man's coffin, saying how great he is, praying over him, saying what a great Christian he was and all these other things. But that's not who he was to us. And I was really interested in, in what compelled a character to go do that. Uh, and it was this belief system. He just didn't believe it was right to let this man be buried and, and not be accountable for a large portion of his life. That's a belief system, you know? That's a, a moral compass. Um, it's almost kind of an ethical uh, code that his character had developed for himself. It didn't lead to positive effects, but it, it's something that he felt was right. It was the right thing to do. The same with Mudd's character. Um, you know, he had built a belief system out of superstition, and that's, that was a defining element of who he was. So as I started to lay out these characters in Midnight Special, I started to think about their belief systems as characters. And you take this religious ranch, they had developed an entire belief system around this boy, but it's a, it's a dishonest one. It's, uh, it has nothing to do with the boy, actually. It has to do with things they want, what they want from the boy. Maybe they get to experience the rapture. Maybe they get to ride the spaceship. Maybe they get to you know, have some bigger understanding of the universe. Great. But that's selfish. That is, uh, that's not what um, the, the real idea of belief is in my mind. Right. It's like one of the characters says when she's being interviewed by the FBI agent, uh, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but she says something like, uh, well, I know that if he's with, with us, then on judgment will day, be, everything's going to be fine. Yeah, we'll be saved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I'm purposely building these, these belief systems. If you take Joe Edgerton's character, for instance... And this is a, I mean, all these things are subtle touches in the film, but they're all there. You know, I always painted him as an agnostic. I always painted him as a very pragmatic person. Maybe he's this state trooper that um, at some point out in West Texas, he'd come across a wreck. And maybe it was a minivan with a family in it. He'd send these, these kids that uh, had been killed in this wreck. And there was no reason to it. There was no justice in it. There was no order to it. It just happened. So his whole argument you know, through the course of this thing is like, look, I don't care what you believe in. I don't care, you know, what you think this boy's meant for. He's sick and he's dying and he's going to die because kids can die. And that's my belief system. That's what I know. But <laughs> his character is consistently challenged by, you know, his rational mind and these fantastical things that are happening in front of him. He constantly is kind of pushed and pulled um, between well, no, this is what I know as a person, and I spent my life kind of building as, as the truth, and here's this thing that just happened in front of me. And that does not make any sense. So in a lot of ways, his character 
is the point of view of the audience. And I'm assuming that the point of view of the audience is a, is a pragmatic belief system. Do you think that these films are, are in, the, in the idea of, you know, this sort of moral system of belief is a reaction to some of the things that are happening in your country right now? I look at the news and, and uh, I, I seem to th feel like the moral compass is kind of spinning a little bit out of control. It, 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 does that make sense <clears throat> to you? makes absolute sense to me. I just don't think it's all only in my country. Yeah. I think... I think zealous thought is dangerous thought. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think anytime you have fundamentalist behavior that that pushes you to one polar extreme or the other, uh, it leads to very evil conclusions. You know, I'm not against organized religion. Um, I think it serves a great purpose uh, in a lot of people's lives. But I think when it becomes the only option, when it becomes a zealous thought, then it becomes very dangerous. Uh, when you're not just using it as a way to to understand the universe yourself, to understand how you fit inside the world yourself. When you start to impose that uh, system of beliefs on other people, then it becomes evil. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that happens, that happens all over the world, but I think if you look at the political climate right now, it's kind of all or nothing. Um, you know, you're either an ultra-conservative, you're an ultra, um, you know, evangelical thinker, um, or you're not with us at all, yeah. and and that's a very dangerous place for society to go to. Um, I'm a I'm a very middle of the road kind of guy, and um, and I think if there are any jabs in this movie at organized religion or just zealous thought, um, it's because that's my position. Right. Yeah, it's become almost like sports. You know, you are a fan of you know the Toronto Maple Leafs all the way no matter that they haven't won a game for ages or not. And it, it, it sort of just becomes one or the other. Um, there's right. a quote that I heard from your interview that you did with Jesse Wente uh, last night where you said, I can't do wonderment, but I can pull off awe. Can you <laughs> explain that a little bit to me? Well, yeah, that was directly talking about uh, the influence of Spielberg. Right. I am a child of Spielberg movies. I grew up on them. Um, and... Obviously, I was impressed with him when I was a kid, but I was even more impressed with him when I turned back around as an adult, having been through film school and started to study the craft of filmmaking. And I looked at how they were constructed, and I think they're particularly masterful. Um, but when you start to look at the, the mechanics that um, Spielberg uses in his films, chiefly John Williams uh, and John Williams' score, those things are they're almost delightful. You know, they're... Um, they're playful, and uh, and I think he's able to build these stories that that were propelled by mystery, but but developed into this really this sense of wonderment. If you look at E.T. and the bicycle flying and all these other moments that are classic moments in, in Spielberg films, they're really wonderful. They're they're um, you know they're delightful, <laughs> and uh, I don't do that. Um, for better or worse, I don't do that. Yeah. You know, um, I think that's why those films were so successful. I think that's what people want out of a movie-going experience. But I'm not really great at that. Maybe it's because I live in the modern age and I'm a little bit more of a pessimist. I don't know. I don't consider myself uh, a cynic. Uh, I like films that ultimately are hopeful. But I think there's a difference. There's a different kind of conclusion in my films than his films. Um, I think my films point toward hope but they don't fully embrace it. 
Right. And I think that's the difference. Um, and it could also be the difference between a blockbuster and a yeah. <laughs> and whatever this is going to be. <laughs> you know, but but that's um, but that's just who I am as a person. That that represents who I am. I love a sense of awe. Yeah. I love a sense of people looking up, mouth agape, and they're just entranced by something. That I know how to do. Uh, I remember in Take Shelter, there was a scene where Mike Shannon was standing on the side of the road at night, and as written in the script, he was kind of looking up at all of this horizontal lightning that was supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, dangerous and beautiful. <clears throat> and on our first take, you know, Mike was kind of flinching and doing these things, and I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, am I scared of it? I was like, oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. We should have talked about this. No, no, no. You're in awe of it. And he's like, ah, okay. And, you know, then that scene started to work. And um, and that is, uh, I kind of took took away from that. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I'm really trying, trying to do here. Uh, we're almost out of time here, but I wanted to ask you about your relationship with Michael Shannon. Uh, you've said, I love Mike, love working with him. We suit one another. My words sound good coming out of his mouth. I guess that kind of sums it up. What is it exactly for you? I think he makes me a better writer, yeah. you know? Um, I think, especially in a film like Midnight Special, where I'm reducing expository information, I'm trying to reduce um, the need for backstory to be delivered through monologues and such. When you have a person like Mike, he fills all the spaces in between the lines with all that subtext. He carries it on his face, in his countenance. He is um, he is the complete story. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't even have to say a word. And, and that makes me a better filmmaker. Well, that's it. That's all. As the old folks used to say, the balcony is now closed. The House of Cross is done for another week. I really like talking to Jeff Nichols. Go see his movie, Midnight Special. It'll make you think. It'll entertain you. Another towering performance from Michael Shannon. Also, Chirac, really worthwhile movie. A little harder to see than Midnight Special. You'll have to check your local listings, but do it. Keep an eye on that because this is a movie that is the the kind of movie I want Spike Lee to make. It's audacious, it's confrontational, it's brilliant by times, and it's entertaining. That's what I want from Spike Lee, and that's what he gives us in this one. Be sure to join us again next week, every Monday. We put up a new episode. You never know who's going to stop by, so please come back and and visit with us again because you never know. Maybe one of your favorite people will stop by for a chat.